Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Welcome to episode number 33 of History for Weirdos. Welcome back, weirdos. We are, as always, very excited to be here. And this week is Andrew's week to regale us with a strange tale. Oh, yes. And strange it is. I know. I'm really excited because I gave Andrew the idea for this one. Yes. Well, kind of. We were in Cabo, in Mm -hmm. Los Cabos, for my birthday. Um, That was my first time there. And of course, what you do when you're on like a luxurious, romantic birthday trip in Los Cabos, we were watching the History Channel at night. Yes. And And guys, History Channel After Dark, um, it's something else if you guys haven't watched it. Yeah. I mean, this if you're listening to this podcast, you need to watch the History Channel at night (laughs) because it's so much weirder than anything we could ever talk to you about. Yeah. That's where like the ancient aliens guy, he... Yes. He he, like dominates it now. He dominates it. It's Um, aliens and pawn shops and strange stories. It's history adjacent, I'd say. It's ironic that it's on the History Channel. Yeah, history adjacent. Yeah, it's an it's it's a distant cousin to history. Right. But all that being said, we were uh, laying in the hotel bed <laughs> just watching History Channel, and this story came like a brief portion of this story right. came up in in like a larger uh, narrative that we were watching, and I was like, oh my god, this would be such a good episode. I call mm-hmm. it, and then like <laughs> a few days later, Andrew's like, I actually want it. and i don't know why i just gave it up i feel like it is meant for you though it is um because there's a lot more to it than we thought yeah that's i'd imagine that's the weird thing about this is i started looking into it and Mm -hmm. there was just a whole life of this guy that was actually very interesting okay yeah i had a feeling there would be a lot to his journey Mm -hmm. um but we're just teasing them now. We're teasing you guys. <laughs> Without yes. further ado, Andrew, my love, will you tell us what this week's episode is on? Or okay. Who it is about. Readers, listeners, <laughs> you're not reading this. You were listening to this. <laughs> wow. You don't uh, read podcasts. You don't read podcasts. If you could, if you could read the words that are coming out of my mouth, like through the radio or whatever you're listening to, that would be pretty cool. The Radio. I don't know why I said radio. God, Grandpa, I'm just... they're listening on an app. Jeez. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say I should shut up, but I should actually continue talking. Yeah, you, you can't shut up. I this can't shut up. I literally can't shut up. Okay. Well, listeners, not readers. What if I were to tell you that this week's story surrounded a legendary American author who isn't even best known because of his works, but because of some mysterious circumstances around his death? Dun, dun, dun. I literally put insert spooky noises here. Oh my god. Thank um, you, babe. We're like soulmates. To be fair, <laughs> he was sort of a weirdo in his own right, and we will definitely get into that. Um, but his death is definitely a very weird event as well. Well, let's introduce author and journalist Ambrose Bierce. Woohoo! Ambrose Bierce. Ambrose Bierce. First of all, a great name. I love it. As an author, he was known as a satirist and horror writer. That's 
an awesome place to start. Yes, it is. In fact, Kurt Vonnegut wrote that he considered Beers to be one of the most preeminent horror writers in American history. Wow. Yeah, so he was legit. Okay, now that we've gone over a little bit of who he was, mm-hmm. I want to go into his backstory. Please, I'm really excited to learn more about Mr. Ambrose. Oh, yes. Well, he was born in Ohio in 1842 to one Marcus Aurelius Beers. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. I shit you not, his father's name was literally Marcus Aurelius. Obviously not that Marcus Aurelius, because, you know, that was... Are you sure? A couple thousand years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure. Okay. And his mom was Laura Sherwood Beers. And I literally put in my notes, yes, his name was literally... His father's name was literally Marcus Aurelius Beers. Only someone named Marcus Aurelius, though, would give their son... Like, such a badass name like Ambrose. I know. And it's interesting because um, this would not be his only coincidental tie to ancient Rome. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll get into that in just a second. Um, but his he was raised um, kind of destitute. Mm-hmm. and uh, But despite that, though... His parents instilled in him a deep love for books and literature. Oh. Which, of course, would then lead on to the rest of his life. He becomes a writer. Yeah, he becomes a writer. That's so oh, heartwarming. I know. And I, I'm like, you especially would love this. Yes. Um, I'm a big book nerd, you guys. She's a huge book nerd, y'all. Big book nerd. Big writer, too. <laughs> no big deal. Okay. He left home at the age of 15 mm-hmm. and to become what was known as a quote-unquote printer's devil. What? At an abolitionist newspaper called the Northern Indianan. Damn. At 15? Uh, at 15, yes. Okay. That's pretty badass. Pretty badass. And, and it was for an abolitionist paper, you said? It was, yes. Okay. And for everyone asking what the hell is a printer's devil, it's essentially an apprentice in a printing establishment who performed a number of tasks such as mixing tubs of ink and fetching type. Mm -hmm. Some notable printer's devils from history, especially American history, have included Benjamin Franklin, Mm -hmm. Walt Whitman, and even Mark Twain. I didn't know that about Walt Whitman and Mark Twain. I did know the term because of... Good old oh, Ben. Really? Yeah. I, I, that was the first time I've ever heard of that term. I, when I was a kid and we were learning about like U.S. history and stuff like that, um, I didn't under, like obviously there's like a modern version, but right. I remember thinking to myself that I wanted to be a printer's apprentice. Oh. But you know we don't live in the. <laughs> <laughs> we don't live in the 19th century. We don't. <laughs> but that's what little me wanted to do. I was like, oh my god, like they actually make the books. Like I thought that that's was the coolest so thing. So sweet. Mm-hmm. You should have worked for like Penguin Publishing or something like that. I know. Next time. Next ne- in the next life. Next incarnation. Okay. Cool. Absolutely. Good. I'll remind you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So at 19 years of age. Our boy Ambrose enlisted in the Union Army's 9th Indiana Infantry and participated in one of the first land battles of the Civil War, the Battle of Philippi. Oh, snap. And guess what? Remember how I said there was another tie to ancient Rome? Mm -hmm. Fun fact, there was another Battle of Philippi about 2,000 years prior where the forces of Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the forces who were led by the assassins of none other than Julius Caesar. Yep. Uh, it was pretty climactic battle, actually. And, and Octavian is Augustus. Yes, Octavian would become Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. That's crazy. This dude has a lot of interesting ties to yeah. an ancient world so far. Yeah, I mean, sadly, those are the only two that I, at least I know of. Yeah, but, but that's I really just thought cool. that was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and if you didn't know, well, now you know. Now you know. Now you know. He would actually receive some media attention um, for his heroics in the next battle he participated in called the Battle of Rich Mountain for saving an injured comrade. Really? Yeah. That's um, so sweet. I know, isn't it? I'm loving this Ambrose. Yeah, and in fact, his and you're going to love him even more, his experience at the Battle of Shiloh, which was probably one of the uh, biggest battles in the Civil War, mm-hmm. um, the American Civil War, obviously, um, his that his experiences in that battle would inspire future works about the horrors of war and his kind of anti-war sentiments. Good, good. Yeah. And I have anti-war sentiments <laughs> as well, listeners. Yes. I that's... think I've made that clear probably in previous episodes. But right. let's just put all the cards on the table. I have anti-war sentiments. And it's so strange because I have pro-war sentiments. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding, guys. I'm kidding. I don't. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> okay. Well, back to the story. To add to Ambrose's distaste of war, he eventually sustained a traumatic brain injury wow. in June of 1864, mm. um, which kind of... Well, actually, like, it... Let me just read what I wrote. Uh, yeah. And now, I'm not saying uh, that this absolutely caused his future love of black humor. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't necessarily be surprised that, you know, this event greatly influenced it. Was his TBI in his prefrontal cortex? I... Babe, this was oh. in the 19th century. <laughs> this was literally the Civil War. I don't think they knew. Was it in the front they part didn't of his have, head? They didn't have pets. It just said his head. Like, okay. they didn't have PETs and stuff back then. I know, then. but the, it's the front of your head. Was yeah. Was it at the front of his head? I'm pretty sure it was. Okay. That affects personality. Loosely, right? Loosely, right. That's the general sense of... It's the last part of our brains that mm-hmm. finishes developing. And it's our... A lot of, like, core aspects of our personality, such as temperament and um, humor and things like that. So that's why I thought maybe... His prefrontal cortex was damaged. Yeah, it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes sense. Yeah, he's a satirist. He wrote like a lot of themes about death. Interesting. So it could be the brain injury or it could be the and or like not mutually exclusive, the experience of the horrors of war. Right. Yeah. Could be. Yeah, a combination. I mean, also there's the, the Civil War was just bloody and awful. Yeah. I can't horrible. imagine having to participate I mean, any in any war is, but like the... When in it, American history, like, the Civil War is just awful. Yeah. Civil Wars, I'd imagine, all over the world are just so heartbreaking because yeah. it's, um, you're fighting your own people. Right. Exactly. Like, that can't feel great. No. It really can't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, he was eventually discharged from the Army in 1865, you know, the last year of the Civil War. But mm-hmm. he re-enlisted the following year in 66 when he joined General Hazen as a part of an expedition to inspect military outposts across the Great Plains. Okay. Yeah, and the expedition traveled by horseback and wagon from Omaha, Nebraska, and arrived at the end of the year in San Francisco. That's a fun trip. I mean, probably, <laughs> probably not for them, now that I'm thinking about it. The lack of hygiene and food and stuff, maybe. Yeah. But that's a really cool road trip. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of cool. I mean, yeah. you know, they, he traveled across the country, saw a lot of stuff, and... You know, and he would eventually, or not eventually, like he would, you know, live for like the rest of his life, like mostly in San Francisco. Oh, cool. Yeah, not exclusively, but mostly. Yeah. Um, and he's, this is when he started, uh, like really started writing. Yay, Ambrose. And, you know, as a writer, Stephanie, oh I am sure gosh. this part really interests you. Stop telling them that. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. 
Yeah, guys, she's a writer. No. Anyways, <laughs> he contributed to periodicals, most often one simply called the newsletter, and he eventually even became an editor of this in 1868. Very cool. Yes, and around this time, he wrote his first story, The Haunted Valley, and in the same year, married a woman named Mary Ellen Day. Nice. Yes. Good they, year for him. They would have three kids together, but sadly, he would outlive two of them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, strangely, they would separate wow. around 17 years later, uh, but wouldn't actually get divorced for another 16 years after that. It must have been really rare to get divorced. Yeah. Right? That must have... It's not even like, oh, we're putting this off. I, I wonder if that was even like much of an option. Yeah. That even really crossed their minds. We don't know why they separated? Um, yeah, I didn't write in my notes, but I just remember reading that he found some like kind of sus like letters from like mm. an admirer. <gasps> not necessarily like, you know. She was getting love letters? Yeah. I don't think it was necessarily reciprocated, but like she was keeping them. I, I don't know. I think he was a little sussed out, as the Utes would say these days. Yeah. And ironically, to bring up ancient Rome again, like Julius Caesar, the reason why he divorced his second wife was because, you know, uh, it was a similar situation, funny enough. And wow. he said, the wife of Caesar must be above suspicion. Oh my God. <laughs> kind of a dick move. As much as I love Julius Caesar, that's a little bit of a dick move. Did Ambrose and his wife separate after the death of their children? Um, Do you know? I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I didn't look into He didn't... Like She wasn't really... Um, a big Even part the, of his story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just strange because they were together for like 16 years. Wow. And, to- and like married for over 30, right? Yeah. Even was... though they were separated for half of that. That's so crazy. And they had yeah. three children together. And they had three children together. But she's kind of like a footnote. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, and sadly, his it was two sons and one uh, daughter and he outlived the two sons. Wow. What a heartache. Yeah. One, oh. one, one killed himself and one died of alcoholism. Oh my God. So it was what really terrible. horrible. Uh, terrible ways to lose your loved ones. Those are really traumatic forms of grief. Yeah. Poor Ambrose. Yeah. So he leaves Yeah. his wife. Well, you know what? Marital issues aside. Marital issues aside. You know, he eventually moved to England, actually. Wow. Yeah, from 1872 to 1875. And he wrote his first book, The Fiend's Delight. Okay, that sounds really uplifting. Uplifting, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Like, death, black humor... I like uh, it. Yeah, and that was his thing. Kind of dark, gritty. I mean, Kurt Vonnegut liked him. Right, so. so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He eventually moved back to San Francisco in 75, 1875 and continued to write. And interestingly, for a brief time, he tried to become a manager of a uh, like a mining operation in like the Dakota Territory. Oh. But needless to say, it didn't really work out. <laughs> yeah, that's so random. Okay. So random. <laughs> and at some point in the 1880s, however, he, it's when he started working um, at the San Francisco Examiner, mm. a newspaper run by none other than William Randolph Hearst. Damn, he's got a castle, you guys. Yeah, he has a castle still to this day in California, by yep. the way, in like the Central Coast. Big newspaper, hotshot. Like, by today's standards, he'd be like a multi-billionaire. Yeah. Super big deal, bougie dude. Yeah, he was even thinking about running for president uh, around like the turn of the century. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. big deal. And because of the exposure he got from the newspaper, mm-hmm. he quickly became an icon of writing on the West Coast. Yay! Like, he was a big deal. Wow, like, to have six, to have success in his life, that's crazy. Yeah. Because I had not heard of him as a writer. When you were telling the story, I assumed that it was in retrospect 
people were like, right. oh, he was good. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. I, I'll get to that. Uh-huh. There, there's a there's a secondary aspect of that. Okay. So, and, you know, he would remain associated with Hearst in the newspaper all the way up until 1909. So mm-hmm. for a very, for like decades, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, and I, and it's funny that you mentioned that because like literally the next thing in my notes is like, it's important to mention that during his time, you know, he published dozens of works under the categories of like psychological thrillers, war stories, and science fiction. Um, there's literally like just too many to mention, like dozens and dozens. And then posthumously, he had so many works published. Wow. Um, but in his day, like he was more known as a journalist. Okay. Like that's what he was known for. Like, yeah, he wrote these things and like he was kind of known, but it was the journalism and like the okay. writing for the newspaper was like how he was really known. Interesting. And it was only until retrospect or now where he's really known as a writer for those works. I would imagine that the, those things like science fiction and psychological thrillers and dark humor in general would yeah. have been ahead of his time. Right. In fact, he inspired the guy who, ins- and I don't know, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't write in my notes, but like, I, I forgot his name, but he inspired the guy who inspired H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, damn. Yeah, so he was really ahead of his time. Yeah, really ahead of his time. Like, he That's was kind of so a forerunner. Yeah, of that genre. Okay. Um... It's, you know, like, he just wrote so many works, and it's kind of insane. Mm-hmm. Kind of to wrap that, that thing up. <laughs> so, a little of a side, and I have to go back a little bit to explain kind of, like, what's, like, the next step in the narrative. Okay. So, in the 1860s, the U.S. government had given out low-interest loans to the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific Railroad Companies mm-hmm. to create the first transcontinental railroad, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we all know about that. The Golden Spike. I remember. Yeah. You I were was right. there. Yeah, yeah, you were there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like one of those random things that I re- actually remember learning from like elementary school. Yeah. You know? They made it a big deal. They made it a huge deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was for the time. It was a huge deal. I mean, in the age of the internet now and like airplanes and everything, it's not... But, you know, funny enough, the Union Pacific Railroad still exists. Mm-hmm. And for them, this would have been, like, such a big leap towards, like, modernization and the right. future. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how they saw it. And, um, you know, as the name implies, this railroad literally connected the country, right? Very well named. From, you know, east to west. I like it. Yeah, right? Very, <laughs> very straight to the point. You get the, you get it what it's, what it's doing. So, but with any sort of loan... You're supposed to pay back that money. And this was, of course, no exception. <laughs> this is Finance 101 Finance now. 101, right? When you take out a loan, you are expected to pay back the money. That's what you're saying? Yes. Interesting. I know. Okay. Crazy. Crazy. Write, crazy. write that down, weirdos. Write it down. Write that down. <laughs> <laughs> and so now that we, I've kind of explained that, this leads us back to the narrative in 1895. Okay. So Collis P. Huntington, an executive at Central Pacific Railroad Company, had convinced a member of Congress and... Mm-hmm. I did some more research and digging on this. There's a strong inclination that he actually bribed this member of Congress. That's what I thought. Of course, right? <laughs> uh, to forgive the remaining balance on the loans yeah. that uh, you know that were given to the railroad companies. And all, by the way, like the the railroad was completed in 1869. This is 1895. So this is like you know Damn. already like 25 plus years uh-huh. since. Um, there was a whopping $130 million left on the balance, which, by the way, converted to today's dollars, yeah. is around, uh, actually a little bit over $4.1 billion in today's money. Did they forgive the loan? I'll get to that. It's not chump change. Yeah, it's not chump change. Got it's it. It's not chump change. 
So since the companies, they were raking in dough, mm-hmm. they had received these loans at lower interest than like what the common person could get, right? Of course. Yeah. Those very low interest loans. Um, and this deal, and essentially, this deal in Congress would have been, you know, had to have been kept low key because it would have been immensely unpopular. Mm-hmm. Immensely. And you probably know where this is headed. Mm. So Beer's headed to Washington in January of 1896 at the behest of William Randolph Hearst to confront these railroad magnets. Ooh, as a journalist he went? Yes, as a journalist. He went to get the scoop? He went to get... I literally wrote that! Really? Yes, I said... And I'll quote exactly what I wrote. uh, The railroad magnets who were trying to push this through Congress and to get the scoop. (gasps) Ew, we spend too much time together. We do. (laughs) It's upsetting. So this obviously did not sit well with Huntington mm-hmm. because, you know, he was, he was like there to expose this, like, you know, essentially like shady dealings. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Back and, cor- deal. and essentially corruption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and, you know, and as Americans, that's like one thing like you, we can all agree on is like corruption is bad, right? Like that is like, that's like our core part of our DNA. Yeah. Corruption is really bad. Um, and... Basically, Huntington just straight up tried to bribe him. Asked him, like, how much would it cost to keep him to- quiet? Bierce, the badass he is, replied with, My price is $130 million. If, when you are ready to pay, I happen to be out of town, you may hand it over to my friend, the treasurer of the United States. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What integrity. The freaking integrity. What and he sass. became a national sensation because of this. I'm sure. Um, and he stirred up just so much, like, just animosity towards these railroad magnets, right? right? These railroad companies that the bill was just, you know, eventually defeated that year and he returned, you know, and he, I guess he, he stayed most of the year in Washington in, mm-hmm. of 1896 and he would return back to San Francisco um, in November of that year. Mm. So he, it was like a big deal. Yeah. Screw the railroad companies, man. Cancel student loan debt. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, that's like the only type of debt where I'm like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Actually. Yes. Yeah. Um, Bierce would eventually re-enter the national spotlight again very soon, interestingly enough. Okay. Um, this time, not as much in a positive light. And I'll get to that. No. Don't okay. worry, I'll get to this. Long story short, he wrote a poem in 1900 regarding the assassination of William Goebel of, in the same year. Mm-hmm. He was um, the governor of... God, I, don't, I can't believe I didn't write this down. I think it was like Ohio or Kentucky. And I'm sorry, listeners, I don't remember which one it was, but mm-hmm. I, it's one of those kind of like the, the states that are kind of like in the Midwest, but like kind of in the Northwest of the Midwest. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Ohio, but don't quote me on that. This governor was assassinated? He was assassinated. Mm-hmm. It, it really doesn't matter like which state he was, but I should have written that down and I didn't. Um, the general tone uh, was that of dismay, like in the poem, right? Mm-hmm. The general tone was dismay and fear. Um, but in it, he just happened to mention, you know, President William McKinley. Okay. And, well, McKinley was assassinated the following year in 1901. Um, Yes. And a lot of William Randolph Hearst's political opponents and rivals blamed the poem for inciting (laughs) the assassin. No. Yeah, which is ludicrous, by the way, in case you guys... Dude, it's like the Beatles and Helter Skelter. Yes, with the Manson murders. Right, That's like it's it's it. absurd. It's like no, it's not. Like stop, 
Like, it's just a, a freaky coincidence. Yeah, exactly. And he just mentioned, like... And saying something does not force another person to take human life, right? Saying yeah. something that you didn't even direct at this human. Right. And you it, just created art. He just... And, like, the point of this poem, too, was, like, to, to say... You know, and William McKinley was just the president at the time. So it was just say, like, oh, you know, this reaches, like, the highest echelons, yes. right? Of government. Like, right? this is so sad. Everyone's sad. This yeah. Is- and it wasn't a, wow. yeah, it wasn't like a call to assassinate the president of the United States. Oh my god! But so and Hearst is his boss. And Hearst is his boss. So like you know like it, the yeah the buck stops there. Yeah. So his reputation, Hearst, you know, took a big hit. I mean, I'm assuming uh, Beerus's did as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, Beerus was still highly regarded as a writer of the time, and you know, Hearst kept him on as a writer. Wow, I'm yeah, really surprised. He didn't fire him. I'm really, really surprised. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's you know, I, I, again, like, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I really want to mention it again that, you know, it's, I haven't really mentioned too many of his literary works because there are just so many. Mm-hmm. And it's just insane. Mm-hmm. There's too many to recount. Um, and I it's ironic that more of his works were... Um, uh, published posthumously yeah as opposed to in know, his life in his life yeah, yeah. Um, and it reminds me of my boy Tupac Shakur yeah who oh. had more work published posthumously and beautiful beautiful poetry he has, beautiful there's, poetry, a, there's right? a book of poems um, by Tupac that I got to read in my graduate program at Columbia that's so cool <laughs> they were really good that must have been like the most amazing poetry it, class ever or it wasn't class. a poetry class oh yeah, yeah it wasn't a poetry class yeah but it was just it was a part of our um, curriculum and I was so happy and which it was class really was good. it um I don't remember good talk I was a really good student <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know this was in Columbia by the way <laughs> like an Ivy League school I don't remember the names of the classes you guys I just <laughs> you just showed up somehow and like got great grades I don't know how <laughs> thanks babe I appreciate that <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay. But back to beers. Back to beers. And now we are, listeners, arriving to the very interesting and climax of the story, if you will. As I say in our intro, it's about to get weird. It's Am I right? It's about to get weird. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so here's what we know. 1913. Beers was interested in what was happening with the Mexican Revolutionary War. And he packed yeah, some right. bags, saddled his horse, and took off. Wow, just like on his own? He's in his 70s, by the way, I should mention. At <gasps> oh this my point. god, you're right, he is in his He's 70s. He's old as hell. Like this guy, it's 1913, he fought in the Civil War. Oh my god. Which was in the 1860s. And he's like, you know what? I want to see what they're doing. Yeah, like, I fought in the war. Like, screw it, let's do it. He crossed through El Paso, Texas into Ciudad Juarez mm-hmm. and joined Pancho Villa's army as a journalist slash observer. A Pancho Villa. Villa. <laughs> He even witnessed the Battle of Tierra Blanca, which was a major victory for Pancho Villa. Yeah. Kind of a big deal in the Mexican Revolutionary War. I'm not going to get too much into it because it's We've not part We've discussed it in a previous episode. We did. On, um, Las, Las Adelitas. Las Adelitas. There's, it's a really, it was a very complicated war. It was. With lots like of, multiple sides. Multiple sides, lots of factions, um, lots of like guerrilla fighting. Really interesting though. Yeah, very interesting, mm-hmm. very complex. Um. Much more complex than, like, you know, our Civil War or Revolutionary War. I feel like they yes. were, those were more kind of... Very, like, this side, that side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, you had, like, factions within this side, but they are all kind of united, at least in the war part of yeah. it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Anyways, his last known correspondence was shortly after, and this is where it's kind of like there's multiple accounts of what his actual last correspondence were. So one of them um, was to his fellow journalist and friend, Blanche Partington. Oh my God, that's another amazing old-timey name. I don't, Blanche. Uh Uh-huh. In the letter, he closed it by saying, As to me, I leave here tomorrow for an unknown destination. Ooh. Spooky. Spooky. It's possible his other last words were, (laughs) Goodbye. If you hear of my being stood up against a Mexican stone wall and shot to rags, please know that I think it is a pretty good way to depart this life. It beats old age, disease, or falling down the cellar stairs. To be a gringo in Mexico. Ah, that is euthanasia. (laughs) That's incredible. I really hope it was that one. I know. To be a gringo in Mexico, even today, it kind of like... Hell yeah, that's the way to go out. That's the way to go out. <laughs> See, way. Uh, sorry to my Mexican listeners. <laughs> yeah, that dude knew what was up, though. Yeah. And from here, it just gets, he just straight up disappears. <laughs> so he says one of those two things and in a I, letter. I found a third one, but it was like from like a really like... I, I couldn't find any other like like uh, like articles or anything listing it, so yeah. I just didn't even include it. But there was also a third one, possibly. He says one of those two things, and then just goes dark. Yeah, and just goes dark. Okay, in but, his seventies in Mexico during the Revolutionary War. Yes. Okay. But here's the kicker: mm-hmm. there are dozens, and I mean dozens, of contrasting and differing reports on his whereabouts and his ultimate fate. Okay. And they there are. All over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, all over the place. Like, both figuratively and literally. Well, you would think that an old American man what hanging kinds? out with Pancho Villa and his, his guys and ladies would stand out. Right. And he did, but he didn't at the same time. So, we're <laughs> going to start with my personal favorite theory. And this comes from the Ancient Aliens on History Channel. Yes. Or as I like to call it, like I mentioned earlier, History Channel After Dark. Honestly, it's the best. So, you know, listeners, take this as you will. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the story goes like this. He wanders or investigates the Zona del Silencio, a.k.a. the Mapimi Silent Zone, like he located in the Mapimi Basin. Mm-hmm. And this is an area where radio signals don't work, by the way, hence the name Zone of Silence. Mm-hmm. And it is here that he encountered some strange space-time anomaly and just straight up vanished into thin air. How do we know that he encountered a weird... Oh, just because he vanished? He just vanished. That's the space-time anomaly? Yeah, or aliens or something. Okay, cool, cool. And just to be clear to everyone, just to be clear, because I don't (laughs) want my words misconstrued, I don't believe this for one second, but I wanted to... to (laughs) Tomato, tomato. (laughs) I wanted to mention it because it's simply amazing and hilarious. Uh, But that is one theory, and I don't believe it. I believe it. (laughs) Okay, back to some possibilities that actually have some credibility. Mm -hmm. Some thought his disappearance was simply an act. And meant Mm. to cloak his either suicide Mm. or being committed to a sanatorium. No! Aliens! That was the least fun one, honestly, in my, my opinion. Others thought he died in the town of Sierra Mojada in the Chihuahua Desert. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's even a cenotaph for him there, which is essentially a like a, a big like grave, but for you know that doesn't include a body, mm. like a big like monument, I yeah. guess in a way, mm-hmm. like a monument. Um, he possibly could have even died at the Battle of Ohinaga, 
fighting against federal forces alongside Pancho Villa. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, there's this one has some plausibility because if this was the case, it would have been hard to identify him because all bodies were burned immediately after from both sides mm-hmm. um, simply because there was a typhoid outbreak. Oh, okay. That and they makes wanted sense. to They didn't just, want disease to spread. Yeah, they didn't want any disease to spread. And they didn't want them to turn into White Walkers. Oh, that too. Yeah. That too. Let's be accurate here. <laughs> we're all about accuracy here. <laughs> but other folks said he survived this battle and actually made it back to the United States. Okay. Um, and even helped a former federal troop along the way. Hmm. And somehow died maybe like at some point along this like treacherous route. Okay. Like, you know, crossing the Rio Grande. Um, other stories recounted him being executed by federal troops in numerous locations. Like there's dozens, like nah, dozens. There's at least a few different stories of him being executed in different fashions along in many different places. Mm-hmm. Um, the feds would do that. And to wrap this up, I'm mm-hmm. going to end it with my second personal favorite. Okay. Because this one I think is even more absurd than my personal favorite. What? Yes. Oh, I, this, I'm going to tell you. One account says that he didn't actually die in Mexico. He traveled southward into, uh, you know, South America. Mm-hmm. And as he once said, he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't, um, he wanted to go to South America. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that, you know, that has, that's plausible, yeah. right? He's like, oh, I want to go there. But this is where it gets a little bit not plausible. Okay. He found an age reversal serum and continued writing as a journalist, Francisco Goldman, who, by the way, is still alive to this day. Oh my God, let's call him. <laughs> yeah. Again, um, I am, I'm going to put my money that this isn't real. Okay. Well. Okay. But listen. But listen. Okay. This, Escúchame. Or, you know, dísame. <laughs> dígame. Whatever. Dígame. I can't, uh-huh. Dígame. Escucha. The Spaniards... You know, the Spaniards. Los Españoles, they were looking for that, like, fountain of youth thing. And they were like, maybe Florida, because it's really weird here. Weird things happen. This is where it would be, right? (laughs) They were right about that. But what if... I love you, Floridians, by the way. Yes. What if our boy Ambrose found it somewhere in South America, and he's alive? And he's alive, like, to this day. Writing. Doing what he loves. You know... Andrew's just like, no, (laughs) not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. What if we call this guy though? You know, I kind of do want to call him and just to see like what his reaction would be. Yeah. Let's just ask. What if no one's ever asked him? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, that is me. Yeah. And we'd be like, wait, what? what?" He'd be like, yeah. No one's, yeah. Like no one's asked because that's so absurd. Yeah, exactly. And then he leads us to the fountain of youth. Oh my God. Okay. That would, guys, that would, weirdos, that would be the most (laughs) amazing weirdo story of all time. Yeah. We'd have to. We would be like weirdos in future History for Weirdos episodes. Exactly. God, that is. Meta. 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 Oh my God. So yeah, that's. I remember, we must have been watching Ancient Aliens, (laughs) of course, because I remember them saying that this old. Like, American dude was hanging out with Pancho Villa and just, like, disappeared. And I was like, I don't even know what they're talking about, but that's an episode right there. (laughs) And it turned out it was way more of an episode than I thought. Like, he he was an absolute weirdo in his own right, even up until disappearing in the most bizarre fashion. Of course. Like, how beautifully appropriate that he would disappear in like kind of a sci-fi mystery way right absolutely whether or not he was executed or died fighting or whatever those things are also very like 
heroic and romantic and interesting, but the fact that there's this shroud of like aliens. Yeah, and he was kind of like an early science fiction writer as well. That's so cool. I'm sure he's happy with this. I think so too. Wherever you are, Ambrose. I'm I'm sure you're happy. Yeah. But, you know, there you have it. That is the life and mysterious end of the weirdo Ambrose Bierce. Amazing. Yay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm bowing. I'm bowing to everyone listening here. (laughs) So before I forget, cite my sources, Encyclopedia Britannica, Mm because, of course, they're actually pretty good lately. I've been using them a lot. Me too. The LA Times actually actually had a great article about him. Cool. Time Magazine uh, online. Poetry Foundation. Hell yeah, yeah, poets. The Paris Review. Oh, cool. And of course, our personal favorite. Wikipedia. There you go. I didn't awesome. even mean to say it. You said it. Yes. Thank <laughs> you so much, babe. That of was a great episode. It learned so much and it touched on so many different things. Like I know, right? Literally from the U.S. Civil War to the Mexican Revolutionary War to... Uh, corruption and bribery like like and quintessential poet- gilded age america yeah and travel and trains and poetry and aliens this had it all it really did yeah and that was like uh, to be honest guys like when i was researching him i went in thinking like oh i'm gonna research his disappearance and focus on that and then i saw his life and i was like oh my god this guy is incredible what a cool dude and he ties to ancient rome which you know obviously for me that is everything everything that's how you know this one was meant for you this one was meant for me i mean his dad was named marcus aurelius like i want to name our son marcus aurelius okay so that is the wrap (laughs) of this week's episode (laughs) thank you as always for listening weirdos please um rate us review us subscribe to us all of those good things find us on instagram at history for weirdos where we can connect Thank you so much for all the support. As always, you all are amazing. Like, we're honestly so grateful. And, and it's the the messages and the comments and the listening, right? Like, we right. see the people listening that keeps us going. So thank you so yes, much. Yes, thank you, guys. And just to, to give you guys a little bit of an update, I was checking our analytics earlier today. Oh, and yeah. we've only been tracking this since September, right? We've yes. been around since the beginning of, what, 2021? No, yeah. 2000. 2000- no, 2020. 2020. 2020. Yes. And then we took a hiatus during like the height of the pandemic. And right. we moved and all these things. Yes. But we've only been tracking the podcast analytics since, since September. September of, of 2021. Of 2021. Mm-hmm. And we hit over 60,000 total listens. Yay! I know. that It's absolutely like mind-blowing to me. So thank you guys so much. Yes. Thank you for being on this journey with us. We love updating you all and we can't wait to see where this continues to go hopefully absolutely well until next time weirdos thank you weirdos adios